CJ Peterson, and welcome to The Journey is Real. We talk to real people with real passions who share a real portion of their hearts. Today, my guest is, make sure I pronounce this correct, Dmitry Badirov. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on today. We're going to be talking about reviving and preserving the ancient culture of handmade violins. So thank you for coming on today, sir. My pleasure, CJ. So it's really an honor to be here and share with you my journey. So, yes, I'm I love very... violins. I'm actually learning to play myself. I don't have anything as beautiful as the violins that you make, but I, I am trying. There's one here in my office. So I have that and a guitar and I have a keyboard. So I'm working Fantastic. on it. Fantastic. Uh, how did, what you do is, is not only a labor of love, but it's also a mission from reading in your website. It's basically a mission. There's something magical about, about holding an instrument made by loving hands instead of a machine. Like I said, I have one here. I know it's been made by a machine, but I can't imagine holding one that was physically handmade. How did this become a passion for you? Uh, great question. So it has become a passion for me because uh, as a kid, I started playing the violin at the age of eight. And my teacher, who is absolutely incredible professor and wonderful musician, Simon Ziskind, uh, whom I met at a very tender age, probably before the age of seven or eight, uh, he was my next door neighbor. And in, in Russia, in Nalchik, Russia, south, southern part of Russia. So it's a, it's a very warm, uh, beautiful, uh, nature-wise beautiful city surrounded by mountains and lots of forests and, uh, and fruit gardens that were blossoming in exactly this season, so in March, April. And he like was a, wonderful. It gives you like a perfect environment for wanting to like connect with nature and connect yes. with music. Yes, yeah, for uh, 10 years of my childhood, the view from my window was on the immense fruit garden and absolutely immense chain of mountains of North Caucasus. And my next door neighbor was my professor. So uh, he was used to practice his violin literally next door. And nice. whenever he played his violin, I felt absolutely uh, transported. I was out of this world and um, completely breathless. I would lean with my ear against the keyhole in his door and I would listen for hours and hours. I'll bet. And he, yes. And when I actually began studying with him at the age of eight, we were still next door neighbors. I would knock at his door every 15 minutes. <laughs> Simeon Grigorievich, may I ask you a question? How do you hold the bow correctly how do you finger and this and that so i probably was quite an annoyance to him <laughs> because i was literally knocking at his door every 15 minutes so this is the passion for violin. Say, come at this time and i'll just teach you how to do it <laughs> yeah the passion for violin playing the, uh, is directly linked with this uh, charismatic personality with whom i'm still in a very close contact after all this uh, years. Now he lives in the United States. He has immigrated very long time ago, but we are in a very close contact and we met in various locations of the world several times. Last year he came to the Netherlands. We spent a few days here in the Netherlands. Well, maybe it was not last year. It was before the lockdown. So that must be the two years before. And um, he was used to play a very precious Italian violin. Uh -huh. 
I don't remember what that violin was, but I, I'm sure it was an Italian 18th century violin. The sound was really incredible. It was so touching, mm -hmm. so rich, so beautiful. And of course, my violin didn't sound anywhere as good. It was a very crude, very primitive factory-made instruments. Mm -hmm. um, one day, imagine yourself in a 15 square meters room of that dormitory belonging to the musical theater where Simeon Grigorievich, uh, or in English, I would, I would call him Simeon Ziskin, so it's first name and family name. By the way, he's still teaching uh, violinists, young violinists in the United States because he's an amazing pedagogue and he's, he's a really big passion to teach kids how to play the violin and how to love music. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was teaching me how to produce that beautiful sound. And I sweated and I struggled and I was in pain and I heard it. Yes, I get it. I do get it. I sound ugly, but I cannot get that beautiful sound like you are getting. What can I do? At a certain moment, I felt really, um, I'm, I'm talking about, I was the age of eight or, no, no, I was at, at the age of 11. And I and he's this master violinist and you're just starting and you're just like, I want mine to sound like you. And it's like, that takes hours and years and tons of time to get there. Exactly, exactly. And at a certain moment, I just um, put my violin down and look into his eyes. And I, I looked at his violin, I looked at my violin and I said, Simeon, look, it just, it just doesn't matter how many hours I practice. I will never sound like you because look at my violin, look at your violin, makes sense? And he agreed with me. So um, I said, let's fix my violin first and then I will probably, hopefully get that kind of beautiful sound that you want from me. He introduced me to the violin maker in the town. And that violin maker in the town, imagine an elderly man, 65 of, 65, maybe 70 years of age. I'm bring chills. I love that. Keep going. And he's quite round. Mm -hmm. Not obese, but he's round. Yeah, let's say he's not athletic. He's rounded with very, I would say, feminine feature on his face. Mm -hmm. um, round cheeks, very big, round, prominent nose, and a giant eyeglasses sitting on top of that nose. You know, the kind of eyeglasses where the lenses are so thick that they act almost like as a magnifying glass for his um, eyes. So this was this man with a beautiful smile and these giant eyes. I was just completely uh, uh, hypnotized by him. I fell in love with that person. He was so charismatic. And I just wanted to become his apprentice. It just struck me there on that point. And instead of, I don't know what happened. I cannot explain it in any other way. I was just really impressed by his personality, this air of mystic. Uh -huh. And so I did just he told teach him, you how, you know, the ins and outs, exactly. how to make it? And did you make your, when you made your first one, I can't imagine what that was like. That was not actually my first violin. So, uh, I mean, that I did not start making violins with him just yet. But instead of asking him to fix my violin, I asked him, would you please accept me mm -hmm. as an apprentice? And to, to my surprise, he accepted me. So uh, the following 
three, four years, I was coming to his workshop and he's, he launched me into this, um, this world of instrument making absolutely incredible personality and his contribution into the culture of music in that southern part of Russia. Uh -huh. It is impossible to overestimate what this man has done is something that no other violin maker on planet Earth has done. I'm even not exaggerating. It's not a, a figurative expression because what he has done is this. Look, 70 years of communism. Mm -hmm. Now I'm taking back, I, I'm taking you back and our listeners, viewers, I'm taking them back to Soviet Union, Nalchik, southern part of Russia in the mountains of Caucasus. 70 years of communism means that the local folkloric culture of traditional music, like folk, like trad, traditional music, was almost, almost kind of completely eradicated. Mm -hmm. And people lost their natural, uh, na national um, music. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course, there was just one band, and that band was actually famous, enormously famous inside the culture, in, inside the country. Uh, but there was just one or two instruments and otherwise kind of acrobatic dance, very impressive, really impressive dance band, mm -hmm. but no instruments. And what my first master did, he actually launched sorts of uh, ethnomusicological research, Vladimir Oiberman, his name, Vladimir Oiberman. So he launched uh, ethnomusicological research. He traveled the mountains, and I'm talking about mountains, mm -hmm. like, hard to describe the beauty of that nature, uh, high mountains of 4,000 meters, 5,000 meters, more than 5,000 meters, uh, villages situated somewhere almost in the glaciers where you cannot get by any means of transport only on foot or donkey or whatever. Um, so he spent five years exploring those areas, meeting people, normally elderly people, who preserved instruments and who still remembered national songs, national tunes, how to play those instruments. And as a result of five years, this person, my first master, he recreated a large array of folkloric instruments, plugged instruments and, uh, and bowed instruments, wind instruments. He found people, elderly people who were able to play. He found young students willing to learn how to play their own folkloric music. Over the course of five years, starting literally from nothing, zero, this man has recreated enough folkloric instruments for two orchestras to start a department of folkloric music at a local university. And these orchestras, they performed at a Paris World Expo in 1978, 79. I'm not sure we, we can Google this because this probably is on the internet, but I'm not sure when. Um, but what I do remember is that in there was this sense of profuse fulfillment mm -hmm. in the air. People were so happy when they have seen that national, their own musical culture revive. They have seen these two orchestras, they have seen their culture being present at a World Expo in Paris in Soviet times. Yeah, I mean, that's, 
that would be like taking away somebody an artist's paintbrush and canvas or you know a writer's computer or typewriter or pen and paper however they work um when you're doing your passion whether whatever medium the art is um art is art and there's something in it that touches your very soul and when you can touch that soul and when you're cut off from it yeah. it just hurts you in so many different ways but when you can revive it and get it going again and get the creativity going again and get that in this case the music flowing through you again there's just something magical about it so there was this uh, magical indeed magical moment i cannot explain it any other way i was 11 i have seen all of this happening uh, before my, well, no, it was not, I was not 11 anymore, I was 14 to be exact, yeah, so or 14, 15. Uh, so when all of this was happening before my eyes, and I have seen this uh, influx of pride, national pride, we are someone, we are not just cultureless people, we do have our amazing culture. There was this uh, sense of renaissance in the air, people were so moved, so happy, and so proud to be you know, Kabardinians or Balkarians, because this was, of course, not Russia, strictly speaking. It was uh, joined to Soviet Union, but historically speaking, that had nothing to do with the Soviet Union. And I thought, and you know, I was 15, I was so impressed. This person, Vladimir Oberman, he was my role model. And I thought, wow, if an instrument maker can recreate something from zero, and that gives that sense of fulfillment and happiness and pride to an energy to achieve anything you want. Uh, I want to be a violin maker. I want to do something like this. Nice. I, I want to revive something of value to leave behind, you know, one day when I'm not on this planet anymore. So there will be something that people will value. And I discovered, you know, it, because of these peculiar circumstances of my um, early years, my childhood, Soviet Union, I've discovered that actually culture is something that separates maybe us humans from the barbarians. We need culture. Culture is our identity. Culture makes who we are, in particular music. Music is so important. Music and the arts. Like I said, there's, there's so many different mediums of different arts that you know, when it's cut out, I'm cringing right now because the public schools have pulled a lot of the arts, whether it's even working with metals and wood or, you know, they've taken their art classes and they've pulled those because they don't have enough money. And it's just like, kids need that. Not every child is cerebral. You know, there are a lot who lead with their heart. They, they need the medium of yeah. some type of an art and they're usually geared to one or another or multiple. Like I, I'm multiple, I'm writing and music. Those are my two that I just soak in music, especially if we're in church or something. I just, being in a huge group of people singing the same song, you know, praising God and worshiping is just something magical. But like yeah. I said, when, when I looked at your violins and I looked at my pathetic little violin, <laughs> it reminded me when you were talking about the little eight-year-old looking at your violin going, this isn't going to make a whole lot of music, but it, you have to start somewhere. And just, I can, it, cannot imagine what it was like for you to make the very first one. Yes. 
what a journey. The journey is real. <laughs> yeah. That's, wow. Um, so when, when I have seen all of this happening and my role model being that person who revived musical culture of a nation from zero, I felt I want to do something like this, but honestly, the beginning of my journey with my first violin was nothing that glorious at all. So I want to take you on a journey and our uh, listeners, our viewers on the journey. So it is 1989. Uh, 1989. So I, I became an apprentice to another violin maker in St. Petersburg, Vladimir Yakimenko. He's, um, I have to pronounce this maybe once one more time, Vladimir, a common uh, Slavic, common Russian name, Yakimenko. And uh, he's extraordinary. What he has done is, I, mean, I cannot overestimate uh, his influence on me because when I began as a serious violin maker with him as an apprentice with the intention to become a serious violin maker, um, he really forced me and all of his other students to use their brain to approach violin making analytically and, and, and find the connection between what we do with some deeper, bigger reasoning. So he would make me read piles of books in English, speaking about 1989. And you're looking at this going, I'm going to make violins. Why do I need to read? <laughs> I, I could not put two words in English in 1989. So I had, but I had to read all these uh, articles with uh, giant you know, dictionaries. Mm -hmm. And then my teacher would ask me, so did you read this article, Dimitri? Yes, I did. So do you agree with the writer? And, and I could say yes or no, but I couldn't say yes or no because I had to justify. Yes, great. Yes, why yes? No, great. Why no? So I had to actually explain. So he really insisted that I, I, I did not just read, but actually understood and analyzed. And one day, I don't remember what it was exactly. Maybe I brought some kind of homework and he was not pleased. Oh. And I'm profusely grateful to this moment. This was a life-changing moment in my life. These five seconds that changed my uh, career as a violin maker, so to speak. So uh, he, he looked at my work, my homework, and he asked, Dimitri, what, what, can you explain me? I don't understand. Why did you cut it this way? And explain him, well, Vladimir Andreevich, I cut it this way because everybody cuts it this way. Mm -hmm. he, he showed me with his finger at the door and he said, I don't want, <laughs> I'm quoting now, brainless monkeys mm -hmm. who does stuff just because everybody else does that. I want uh, apprentices who think. Good for and, him. Wow. I like, wow. I like him. <laughs> I, I, like, I love I him like to this the, day. Yeah, I like the uniqueness of each and every individual yeah. person and the fact that he's promoting yeah. that was yeah. probably huge. I could see it as yeah. a turning point because you don't want to, I, I, you might as well make a machine if that's what you're doing. Exactly. And that's the problem. In today's violin making, there is a little bit too much of common knowledge, like everyone doing the same thing. So with uh, Vladimir Yakimenko, that was the... The, the cornerstone of my career. I would not be anywhere near without him, absolutely, without any exaggeration. So I, I was fired. I like a brainless, brainless monkey. And that was true. 
So I, I suffered a lot. It was really painful because I really dreamt to do this. And when he accepted me, it was like, really, is this happening? Because he had a huge reputation. Mm -hmm. And when I approached him in the beginning, I even didn't believe that he would accept me as an apprentice, but then he did. And then he fired me. I was like, terrible, 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 terrible. The moment in my life. So it was 1918, 19 or something like this. Um, but uh, one month later, he kind of readmitted me and I came apologetic, Vladimir Andreevich, I think I understood what you meant, I will never do this again, would you please, please, please accept me again in your yes. violin making class, so he did, and um, ever since, yeah, I took it really, really close to my heart that I have to study the masters, but I also have to study their thought process, their methods, and try to not just blindly copy the masters, uh, but also try to find out how did they think, how did they feel, why violins, guitars, any stringed instrument have that particular shape, because the truth is European instruments could, be, could look just like Indian instruments or Chinese instruments, but they don't for some reason philosophical, aesthetical, historical reasons, there, there are literally thousands of years of culture beneath these enigmatic outlines and acoustic and the voice of classical music. So what is that culture? And here comes to my mind uh, the citation from Japanese uh, philosopher and poet Matsuo Bashohu, whom I discovered thanks to one of my professors uh, in Brussels Conservatoire, I was 25, and I moved to Brussels to study uh, Baroque music and aesthetics of Baroque music, how they, how they played the early instruments and so forth. Uh, Bartold Kaiken, the brother of the celebrated violinist Sigiswald Kaiken, who was my actually professor at the time. And he introduced me to this uh, citation by Matsuo Basho, do not seek for the footsteps of the wise seek what they sought. And I thought, yeah. That's pretty smart. That's pretty smart. So what that, what that meant for me in practical terms, well, that meant that I had to spend uh, months in the libraries and read ancient treatises sometimes in really difficult and really archaic languages, no, no, 16th century French or 17th century Spanish or, or. But that uh, allowed you German. to, yeah, allowed you to think and mold your own kind yes. of thought process and yes. stuff. Um, yeah. We're kind of running out of time. Um, I could talk yes. about this forever because I love music. For those who want to find your violins online, how can they find you? They can find uh, what we do on my website, badiarofviolins.com. I also teach the ancient masters acoustic concepts and the five steps of running a successful instrument making uh, business 
to my students while in Maker. So I'm regularly getting hired by groups of makers or individual makers to help them identify where the gaps are in their business or in their acoustics or their artistic approach to instrument making or marketing or sales. So I um, also teach that at my Authentic Instrument Makers Academy. So there is a website, Authentic Instrument Makers Academy, where they can actually uh, join my online free online training and learn about my systems. Nice. Um, now, before we got on here, there were two other things that we talked about. I wanted to make sure that we tapped on those. Um, you have a book you're working on, and also you have a podcast launching. By the time this is up, it would have already been launched. Can you quickly talk about those? Yes. Uh, so the podcast launch, it has been kind of pre-launched. That means that it is already on all of the popular podcasting platforms. So the name of the show is Luthiers or Luthiers and and Legacy, Luthiers and Legacy a podcast. Uh, so people can find us on iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. What's on, your podcast uh, about? So this is for violin makers and instrument makers. Oh, cool. So this is where they can learn all of the uh, philosophy, systems, strategies, and, and spirituality of success as an instrument maker. And of course, the whole idea is to uh, enable instrument makers to keep that ancient European culture in fine instrument making, uh, keep that culture alive and transmit it to other musicians so that musicians can share it with, with their audiences. Audiences, by the way, absolutely love learning about these 2000 years of culture and the stories around it. I'm so sure. yes, I, I teach instrument makers and, and they're really passionate about that. What's it called again? AuthenticInstrumentMakersAcademy.com. Authentic, that's yes. what the podcast is called? No, this is my academy. No, what's and the podcast called? Oh, the podcast is uh, Luthiers and Legacy. Luthiers and Legacy? Yes. Okay. So this is... Um, take just a few minutes to talk about your book because we are actually over time. <laughs> um, so what's your book going to be about? So the book is going to be about the 2000 years of uh, philosophy, culture, and aesthetics of music in musical instruments. So the idea of this book is to enable uh, fine violin makers to design instruments with 100% certainty or almost 100% certainty so that they can serve very serious musicians in any country of their world and keep that uh, ancient culture alive. So right. the book is about how to be way more successful instrument maker, how to double, triple, even quadruple the income, while at the same time making it a really a no-brainer for musicians, because uh, I teach not just the craft side of instrument making, but also the business side of instrument making. And for me, any creative career, uh, instrument making, freelancing a music career, or any career for that matter, any business for that matter, we need great product. We need great marketing and we need great sales. Awesome. These are the three pillars of running a successful, fine violin making business. Awesome. I'm going to give you two more minutes because we are over time, but is there anything you'd like to add? I would like to add this. Look, uh, there will be moments in, your, um, in, in, in the lives of our listeners when when they feel kind of a split in their mind or in their heart, if you will, where they feel like they want to do something, something really beautiful, but they have also all these doubts. I am not someone special. I will not succeed what people will think. I am not 
old enough, I'm not young enough, I'm not experienced enough, it gets zillions of, of reasons. So the thing is, uh, when somebody is in that split, it is just because our human brain made that, made that way. So there is that human side that wants to achieve more. And there is this animal side that is afraid of anything at all. So it is very important to realize what part of your mind is speaking and always go for the part that leads to a hard place. Nice. Because it will, at the end, it will always work out nicely, especially when there is mentorship in place. Definitely. Thank you, Dimitri, for your kind words. And thank you for thank you so much. sharing your heart and your story. We really appreciate it. Um, anyone who wants to learn more about Dimitri, you can find him at B-A-D-I-A-R-O-V-V-I-O-L-I-N-S.com. And what was the other one you mentioned? AuthenticInstrumentMakersAcademy.com. AuthenticInstrumentMakersAcademy.com as well. So thank yes. you for coming on. And thank, thank you, you so guys. Much. You're welcome. And thank you guys for listening to The Journey is Real. We talk to real people with real passions who share a real portion of their hearts. I'm CJ Peterson of CJPetersonWrites.com. Until next time.